Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Sarah McDooling, the Kids and YA Category Manager. I am here with my co-worker, Shandu Prasad, and we are both delighted to be talking today with Amy Kaufman and Megan Spooner, the authors of many books, but the one we're talking about today is The Other Side of the Sky. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Hi, Hi. yeah, it's great to talk to you guys. Um, now, for everyone listening, would you just tell us a little bit about your amazing and wonderful new book? <laughs> uh, well, it's amazing and wonderful. Let's start there. No, Obviously. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, it's the story of a prince who falls from a science fiction city in the sky and he lands in a world below that's ruled by magic and prophecy. And there he meets the girl who is the other half of the story and she's a living goddess, and he is a part of one of her prophecies. Uh, there's also a very swoony romance between two people who are not allowed to touch at all, because that's that's a part of her deal as, as a goddess, and there's also a very cranky cat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well said. Uh, so, um, I, I wanted to, I don't know, first of all, can I just say I adored this book. This book was mm-hmm. one of the best things I've read all year. It was just exactly what I wanted at the time that I picked it up. And it called to mind, you know, so many things that I loved growing up. And it makes me want to ask the question, you know, this blending of um, sort of post-apocalyptic science fiction and magic is is quite special and I don't come across it that often and I just wondered where that first spark of inspiration came from for you guys. Well it actually came as a result of of us kind of wanting to set a challenge for ourselves. We wanted to see if we could do it. We wanted to see if we could write a book that straddled the line between fantasy and science fiction and did so in such a way that the reader was never quite sure which one it was or which one it was going to end up being. When we're in Prince North's point of view, it's a science fiction book. And all of the things that the locals think are magic, he tries to explain by saying it's just science that they've forgotten how it works. And when we're in Nim's point of view, the goddess's point of view, we know that it's magic because we see her doing it. Um, And we wanted to make it this sort of blend so that the reader themselves was never quite sure what kind of book they were reading. I wondered how hard that was to balance and whether in trying to blend two subgenres together, did you find, you know, that there was different tropes that you had to work in or like how difficult a balancing act was that? I think the hardest part was blending the two voices of the characters, actually. I think mm. the the world building all felt very natural to us because the way that North's science fiction world and Nim's fantasy world coexist, like we understand that world and it makes sense to us, but the voices of the characters are very different. You know, Nim has a very sort of lyrical fantasy she's a goddess she does a lot of rituals and speeches and you know she has this kind of cadence to both her dialogue and her pro and her sort of uh, narration whereas north sounds much more the way maybe one of us would sound if we were suddenly dropped into a <laughs> world 
especially <laughs> a world where uh, you um, have never seen an animal before. Or <laughs> that was one of my favorite uh, favorite scenes where he uh, he eats something and does not realize what it is he's uh, <laughs> I mean, North has lived all of his life on this archipelago in the sky. Yeah, uh, where they have limited resources. You know, they have limited space, and there will never be any more. They have everything they have. There will really never be any more of it except what they can make or grow themselves. So. I mean, you know, the sheer, the resources a cow, a single cow takes means the, you know, there's absolutely no reason for them to have animals up there, not when they can get their protein somewhere else. Exactly. So, yeah, <laughs> he, you know, and that very much governs his relationship with Nim's cat as well. Like he is not entirely sure. And, and I think, frankly, this goes for a lot of people in our world as well. He's not quite sure how much the cat understands <laughs> or how intelligent the cat is or how much what the cat does is on purpose. He quickly learns, though, right, that you should really, you know, the cat is really the, the ruler of everything. And you should really just, just bow yeah. to the cat. So, I mean, he proceeds with, with wary respect at all times. Yeah. That's a good way to approach most cats, I think. But was the yeah. Bindle cat such a highlight of this book, inspired by perhaps a real cat? He was inspired, indeed, by a very real cat. He was inspired by my cat, who um, sadly died while we were writing the book. Um, so we oh, sort no. of... He was a very old man. He was a very old cat. In fact, we... So sad. I mean, this is... It's very sad, and I was devastated. But we actually talked about this when we first decided to write him into the book. We talked about, you know, if we lose Icarus, that was his name, Will I still, would I still be okay to, to write this book? And I said, absolutely, because, you know, this is, his, this is how we immortalize him, is by making him essentially the star of this book. He tur he's turned out to be like everyone's favorite character. So. <laughs> Which we sort of knew would happen, but yeah. but it, <laughs> We had to think about it at the start though, because we knew that by the time this book was published, you know, Icarus would have been eligible just about for the Guinness Book of Records. So, yeah. you know, wow. yeah. the odds of him not being around to see the book were pretty high. And, you yeah. know, not in a morbid way, but just in a, this is a cat who's had a great, big, long, wonderful life with, with the girl he loves most in the world. Uh, I mean, that, that part of him is very much in the book, in that North and Nim, the two characters, have the same relationships with the cat that Meg and I essentially do because <laughs> it's true. Yeah. You know, Icarus the cat loved Meg more than anything in the world. And that was a little bit because he didn't really love anything else in the world except <laughs> Meg. Um, Sounds he, great. <laughs> he, he was a one woman cat and that was the way it was. And so, you know, in the book, Nim and the cat have this wonderful relationship where, you know, she can pick him up and he loves to sit on her, her shoulder. And, you know, a part of that closeness comes from the fact that she she's forbidden from touching anybody. You know, when she was a kid and she broke her arm, she had to set it herself. And so being able to hold the cat, it's the only thing she can touch. Whereas North shares my, the wary respect that I always had for Icarus. And I spent years trying to charm Oh God, we tried so long to get Icarus to like Amy. Yeah, and <laughs> my only comfort is he didn't like anyone else either. So, it, you know, yeah, but, well, it wasn't you. <laughs> but you know what? Like, I'll be honest, I haven't had a lot of times in my life where I've tried really hard to charm someone and it's just completely <laughs> fallen flat. It's true. Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot. But, but with this guy, I remember one time Meg had this idea that, you know, if, if I was the one who gave him his treats that week, maybe he'd be into me. 
And what happened is logical, right? I mean, it wasn't a bad idea, but what happened was I gave him the first treat and he was like, oh, cool. So she knows where the drawer is that the the treats are kept in. And he spent the rest of the week, I stayed with them just yelling at me to follow him to the treat drawer. (laughs) (laughs) And you're hooking his claws in attempting to to tow me to the the treat drawer. Yeah, Uh, he knew what he wanted. He did, and he was a clear communicator. I'll give him that. Right, so oh, this, I love this is the sound of this cat. <laughs> yeah. So potentially, <laughs> book two is your chance to rewrite some history, potentially. I mean, well, the thing <laughs> is, toward the very end of his life, Icarus did come around enough to tolerate me. There were, you know, he a couple something. of times where he he sat in my lap and let me pet him if I did it exactly the right way. If I didn't, he wouldn't hurt me. He would just like look at me like, you know, I can injure you do it the right way. <laughs> alter my technique. But in the end, you know, he did finally mellow enough that I was acceptable or, or he just accepted that I wasn't going anywhere. I don't know. Oh, I love it. Not in that oh, sort of a character or relationship arc that we're exploring between North and the Bindle Cat is, yes. you know... <laughs> If, if for some reason Nim isn't around, can the Bindle Cat and North get along? Yeah. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah. Getting very close to spoiler territory. That will, uh, it's going to be so hard. Again, again, it's going to be so hard to stay away from um, in this discussion <laughs> because yeah. there's just so many things that I, I, we would love to, to like really delve into, into with you. But if we do that it, and someone listening to this hasn't read the book yet, um, totally. it will, it will spoil some things. So we'll, we'll have to leave those to um, the discussion after the, after the next book. Yeah. Um, but well, Sarah, what well, are some things we can. In a few months for, for people who are listening in a few months, Meg and I will probably do, you know, an Instagram live where we'll label it up front. This is going to be a spoiler chat. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. All your spoilery questions. Excellent. That, that yeah. would be fantastic. So people can prep with this one, yeah. make sure they've read the book and then yeah. head to your Instagram and um, ask okay. all of the questions yeah. that we can't ask today, okay. but we can ask. We have had a lot of, <laughs> we have had a lot of people wanting to have spoilery conversations with us in the context of, you know, things that will be public and in theory, non-spoilery. And we've had to be like, ah, 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 stop, stop, stop. (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Um, So we can ask some more general questions though, right, Sarah? So you had, uh, we were going to ask you a bit more. I want to talk about the romance. Exactly. Sorry, I completely cut you off. (laughs) No, no, but that's what I was going to ask. So that is. Yeah, because I think both of us, as we were reading it, I think Sarah had, had read it a little bit earlier than, than I had. And so I was like, oh, I'm up to this part. I'm up to this part. She's like, oh, just wait till you get to, <laughs> like, the looks. Sarah, I <laughs> adore this romance. And it had so many great moments. And, Chani, you said earlier, you mentioned one of your favourite parts. My favourite part is romance-related. I won't talk about it because it would be a crime to um, spoil this romantic moment, but there is a romantic moment. It's cool to say that, right? <laughs> it's fine. I can say that there's more than one. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. that was actually, you know, the, you know, Meg mentioned that the first challenge that we set ourselves with this book was to write a book where you argued with yourself the whole way through about whether this was sci-fi or fantasy. But the second challenge that we set ourselves was, can we write a romance that kills people between two characters who aren't allowed to touch. I think that's the best kind, though. I just think about all of the all of the wonderful things from like Dark Angel to um, the Pie that that one with Anna Friel's Sarah. What's the name of it? Oh my gosh! Where uh, he owned the pie shop 
pushing oh babies. Pushing, pushing babies. babies. Yes. Yeah. 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 I've like, forgotten about Dark Angel. <laughs> that's where it all started. <laughs> With, it's uh, the ultimate yeah. forbidden romance um, yeah. when well, when you can't touch. And one of the things that inspired us, I mean, we were definitely inspired by things like Pushing Daisies. We've both seen that show and both love that show. Um, but another thing that was a big inspiration for us was essentially Regency romance or like Pride <gasps> and Prejudice. Yeah. Because yes. in yes. those romances, you don't see a lot of making out or sneaking off to dark alcoves. It's all gesture and implication and glances. And we wanted to see what we could do with that. We wanted to see if we could make a romance that would drive readers totally crazy without the sort of immediate gratification of like having your characters make out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, in Regency stuff, it's like, oh my God, he asked her to dance. Yes. Oh, I get to touch. I get to touch know, in the dance. dance. The third <laughs> dance or that particular waltz or whatever, you know, like these things that take on significance because you take away so much absolutely it really is so well done and what struck me is that you have this like amazingly intense um forbidden romance going on at the same time as you have some pretty like spectacular world building and you also have both members of this romance that's unfolding having their worldview like completely changed and um I don't know if this is even a question, but I'm just like, I'm just amazed that you're able to do it all. And I want to know how, and I want to know like <laughs> if it's, you know, how much work goes into all of it, like getting all of that, just the right percentage, because it seems like it would be insanely difficult. <laughs> it definitely is. And you know, with this particular book, it actually took us about five years to write it, which for us is quite long. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm talking from, you know, the first sort of glimmer of an idea together yeah. to actually handing in the final draft. Um, it definitely took time. And part of that was us realizing years ago that we weren't quite ready yet. Yeah. We, we needed to level up our writing to be able to do this book because we knew that in order to do everything that we wanted to do and do it well, we needed to be better than we were at the time we first had the idea. Wow. Yeah. Definitely. What's the normal time frame for you guys writing together with, with, with your previous books? Um, oh, like a say, year and a half, maybe? Yeah. Wow, so this has been a long time coming. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, we, we talked about this before Unearthed and Undying, our, our last duology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, as, as Meg says, we just had that moment where we thought, this is complicated and not complicated in that way where if say you're doing I don't know a really you know frenetic thriller where they're running all over town trying to dismantle bombs and it's it's very complex in that you have to make sure that they don't accidentally you know get 10 blocks up in under 30 seconds you know you yeah. have to make sure but you can do that with you know a whiteboard you can do that with just pin every plot piece up one after another mm. and make a giant chart and you know it all comes together whereas this is more how do you track a romance how do you track their feelings toward each other how do you track the questions that he's beginning to ask about his science and she's beginning to ask about her magic that mm. all have to just change by you know a fraction of a degree in in different conversations you know you can't write all of those on note cards and pin mm. them to a board it's 
it's more it's multi-dimensional yeah. you know it's yeah. like their their personalities and their relationships with each other reflect their personalities and relationships with their worlds so as north's view of her world changes it's happening at the same time as his view of her is changing you know he falls in love with nim the way he falls in love with her world and falls in love with the idea of magic and all of that is happening at once and so it's not just you know you can't graph it on a chart the way you can graph an, an, an ordinary plot or even an ordinary romance it's happening in multiple dimensions of storytelling all at the same time and that was the complexity that we that attracted us to this story but also made us realize we needed to to get better before we could do it justice yeah well i think you've uh, def definitely definitely achieved that it is it is so captivating <laughs> and it just um it's me it's i i don't know what i'm supposed to do now waiting for the next one um do you write do you, write, you write them when you do a duology which is you know it's i love them because i have no patience to wait for <laughs> A trilogy i like to read everything about the like the whole story in one in one go I'm, I'm very impatient so um i broke my rule and read this one even though i knew beforehand that i was gonna have to wait a really long That's time so true. I, I you never wait. start series unless they're finished so guys no. so um, um amy Shana will rarely ever 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 pick up a book unless the whole series is available to her Yes, because um, I feel so flattered that you picked no. up ours. <laughs> I couldn't. I, I as soon as I heard about it at the at our cell, and I was like, "Oh, just just send it to me, please, please, please. I just want to read it." And and they're like, "You know, that's like the first one, and there's going to be another one." I'm like, "I know, I know, I know. Just just give it to me." <laughs> anyway, um, but do you do you write them like when you do a duology? Did you write them together and then split them, or do you literally write one book and then then you that's and then you then you write the next book separately, or is it? Oh, is how does that work? And unfortunately yeah. for you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not asking so you can send me like a really early copy. I was just curious. <laughs> no, each one is its its own story because there's so much that you discover in the writing yep. of it that I think we we hold pretty loosely to what we think is going to happen in the sequel because when you're doing something so delicate in the first book, you know you can't predict 100 where you're going to end up. Yeah. Ah, that's really interesting. I, I've always wondered that because, because when I've you know read your previous work, um, the, it always it always is so seamless, and it and it really feels <laughs> like, as I said, because I read them together, <laughs> generally, um, it really it really feels like uh, you know you everything had the whole comes thing together. Of, yeah, from like from start to finish, and you knew exactly where you were going all the time. So I really I really find that interesting to find out when when authors um, are, are like that, and when authors also just let the work kind of guide them to where it should where it should end so does that mean that you don't know where the next one's ending or you're we know we've got a, a, an ends, idea how, how how you're going to get quite get there yeah we usually have quite a few things in a book whether it's the first book or the second book or the third book or the last book or yeah. standalone <laughs> we always have some idea of where it ends and of some significant scenes and turning points mm -hmm. and reveals and revelations and twists and things that happen along the way and the sort of stuff in between those points is where we discover the real depth to our stories i mean that's always where it's funny when we start we think the twists that we have planned are going to be the biggest most important coolest things about the book <laughs> and inevitably it's always yeah. actually the stuff that we discover as we write that ends oh, up being wow. cooler and, and more exciting. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of a combination. I mean, 
I am 100%. Uh, I do not plot out my books ahead of time. I don't outline. I just write them. Amy uh, is the opposite. Amy likes mm -hmm. to outline her books. And so when we work together, we have to kind of tiptoe this line, this happy medium in between the two styles. But as much as I am most comfortable just making it up as I go and she's most comfortable outlining, the fact that we each sort of compromise and bring the other person's process into our own actually, I think, makes us both stronger writers. That's so you know, cool. It, force, it, it forces us each to sort of step slightly outside of our comfort zone. Although at this point, I feel like it's very comfortable for us to do that now because we've done it a lot. But yeah. it does mean that we kind of create in a way that is unique, even from our own solo work. Yeah, like I think it was a lot less comfortable early on when we weren't 100% sure if it was going to work. Whereas now, like, yeah. this is our sixth book together. We always find our way to the end. Yep. Yeah, so, you've got you know, that. There's a that confidence. comfort in knowing that. Yeah. And then right, you can the go, ahead, go ahead. And you know that even if you can't feel it right now, you know that you'll get there in the end because you had that experience where it's, where it's worked. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's, has, that's, that's a good um, philosophy for life. <laughs> yeah. This has partially answered, you partially answered one of my questions, but. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how you work together, which I think you, you explained beautifully. But I also wanted to ask, um, you both write alone and, you know, and with others. What is it about you two together? Um, like what's unique about when you guys write a book together? I know you, you're such good friends. Um, I just sort of wondered if there was something about when you two get together to do a book that just is different from any other writing combination or solo? I mean, I think... I think go ahead, Amy. Go, Meg. <laughs> oh. Um, I was just going to say, I think when Amy and I write together, we, our audience is each other. We're not writing really for readers. We're, we're writing for each other. That was how we met and became friends, was writing essentially fan fiction, sort of role-playing interactive fan fiction with each other for entertainment and for the joy of writing and I think when we write books together now I think that we both just experience a lot of joy writing for each other I mean we write characters and worlds and settings that will thrill the other person and we get that sort of immediate feedback you know we trade chapters back and forth and it's you know I'm always racing to I will you know when we're drafting I will open the manuscript while I'm like, it's the first thing I do. I wake up, I, I pick up my phone, I'm still in bed and I read her chapter because I'm so excited. And I think oh. that that joy and excitement and love of the story comes through. I think it's a thing that readers sense and I think that's why it works. And I think that that's something that you don't get when you're writing by yourself. Yeah. I think it definitely comes through. Yeah, and I mean, because the thing is, I think it, there's a very strong foundation underneath what we're doing together because, you know, writing together is how we met. And then, you know, we, and we did that for several years just for fun. And then because I'm in Australia and Meg is in the U S essentially what happened is eventually after like multiple degrees and my, my best efforts to avoid it, I was finally forced to leave university and join the workforce. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I believe I have really tried not to. Uh, and, but what that meant, was that I was no longer around during the Australian day, which was the US evening. 
And so that meant that we weren't naturally on in, in the sort of places that we were writing together in these games at the same time, which meant we sort of had this decision to make, not, not quite consciously, but either, you know, some friendships come in seasons and sometimes they sort of just fade out over time and that maybe this would just be one that would fade out because we just wouldn't see each other anymore or we would, would have to otherwise make a conscious effort to find ways mm-hmm. to maintain the friendship. And, and obviously we made a conscious effort. And so that meant that we were writing to, we, we started writing stuff just together, just the two of us. And, you know, at first it was the same stuff from the same sort of worlds and games we've been playing. And then it moved into original stuff. But I think that, cause I mean, Meg and I have, have traveled the world together. You know, she's come to Australia and lived here as, you know, we were flatmates for years. So I think the fact that, you know, when we're writing together, we are really writing as one person because we are those besties who finish each other's sentences. Yeah. You we know, are that person. close. Yeah. yeah. You know, we... And at this point, we can each kind of like write in each other's voices even. I mean, it's yeah. not quite the same, but you know, if, if, if I had to, I could write a North chapter and if she had to, she could write a Nim chapter and I don't think anyone yeah. could tell the difference. Oh, no. I, okay. That's good. Because I was going to ask who, who was the, who was, who was whose voice? Um, yeah. And whether, whether you thought that you were similar whether you picked that because you thought that you were more similar to that character or you picked it because you were yeah how do you decide character. how do you decide how do you choose look so far i have always written the gents and meg has written the ladies but that is not to say that we wouldn't swap if we were better suited to the it's other usually character. about the personalities yeah. of the characters the voices yeah. of the characters and it just so far has happened that all the women have been written by me and all the men have been written by amy but I mean, in this case, it goes back again to that to that world and sort of another reason why I think we write well and work well together is that we have very different strengths, Amy and I. Um, you know, yeah. uh, Amy is funny and smart and clever and pithy, and that's who North is. You know, he makes these sort of like smart-ass remarks about... <laughs> magic and religion and prophecy and even when he doesn't say it out loud because he's like too polite and diplomatic because he's a prince and he learned to keep his mouth shut he still thinks it and the reader gets to see his sort of snarky comments in there and so if I had been writing North it just wouldn't have been the same kind of funny that Amy brings to the equation with that like North would not be half so charming (laughs) and I just like I mean I Meg's very kind to say that we could each write chapters and that no one would be able to tell but I don't think I could write a new chapter I I, I think I I could write at best I could write like a knockoff because I mean you know anyone who reads the books will see that there's a real art and I think it's I always hate saying you know only writers will really understand because I think that's horrible and exclusionary but I do think that the the more I get the further I get into this career the more I, I realize, you know, I think in any career, sometimes you see someone do something and you think, oh, you actually have to be quite experienced to even know how good, how good you are to be able to do that. hundred percent. Because it yes. looks easy, you know, um, you know, the same as, I don't know, when, the, when we're all watching professional sport, we understand it's a level <laughs> of skill, but I know that other people who are professional sportsmen definitely understand in a way we don't. Yes. Yeah. Just what they're saying. And Nim is a really lyrical, really poetic character. She's really, you know, everything she writes, you know, is just sort of this gorgeous, lush prose. And the 
there's, I mean, there's a skill level required to be able to write that kind of prose, but then it's a next level skill to be able to do it without it becoming kind of just really purple and really tangled. And just by the time you get to the end of the sentence, you've kind of gotten a bit lost in the adjectives and you're not quite sure what's actually happening anymore, even though it's a beautiful image. And so I think like Meg's gift is being able to write that stuff that is so evocative and so poetic, but also you really can clearly see what's happening. And and yeah. you know that poetry and clarity of writing uh exclude each other so yes I think yes absolutely I, th I think that's uh that's definitely something that came across in the in the reading of it is yeah. is that you really get this beautiful sense of of the world through nim's eyes that um you know and what her world is what her world is like right um, but but you also do get i just i think there was there was these times where where she's like sort of her gentle, not rebuking, but when she's, you know, when North is being all, you know, um, what are you talking about? This is, this is, uh, it's obviously yeah. science. And then when he says something and she just like interjects with the, oh, you mean, well, that's magic, you know, and he's like, no, 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 science. She's like, no, 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 magic. And I just think that that kind of interplay between them just shows how, um, and I think uh, the, the goddess, it, the, the goddess that she is and the beautiful way that she speaks, but then the human that she also is. Yeah. Because um, we didn't Which is want fantastic. a, you know, high tech guy from the sky meets, you know, primitive gullible people yeah. on the ground mm -hmm. who think that this is magic. You know, yeah. she, she had to get one over on him plenty of times to make clear that she is absolutely his equal. Yes. And he's not stupid or credulous to think. This no, is no, no. Like she might be right. Yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's an, an exchange very early on where he essentially says, well, you know, technology is, you know, all about stuff that we can explain, uh, you know, and, and magic yeah. is completely inexplicable, you know, and, but I promise you there is a way to explain your magic. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. Explain an engine to me. And he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I can't personally explain an engine. Someone, someone can, like, someone can. <laughs> yeah. And she's like, oh, I thought you could explain science. Go on, and you're like, yeah, we'll okay, that yeah. Fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it makes me think of actual conversations I've I've, I've had in life about you know about certain things where you, know, you, you do mm -hmm. get challenged because you like you just have a worldview that's your worldview, and then mm -hmm. you know someone comes along and um, and I think that's and I think that's really great. I mean, obviously we're adults, you know, writing and reading, but I think for teenagers as well, actually, you know, reading um, reading stories that do give both sides and do show how, how easy it is to misunderstand um, yeah. uh, other people and what benefits you get when you do actually open your eyes and open your um, thoughts to, um, to uh, something other than yourself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we really wanted to write a book in which we had people with completely sort of almost polarized views of the world, completely opposite views, who still respected each other and treated each other like, equals and even eventually begin to have feelings for each other without necessarily needing to convince one or the other that they're wrong you know we, we didn't want to have it be that like one of them was right the whole time and the other one was wrong you know yeah. they're both right and they're both wrong yeah i think and something like uh sky steel is like a really good example of something where it's uh it's both science and and um and magic and it's used mm -hmm. in a scientific way one in one in one place and in a sort of magic way in the other in the other world and you just know because it's you guys writing that book 2 is going to explain or or give us some kind of understanding of how this science and magic 
like what happened in the past and how this science and magic came to be. And I can't wait to find out. And I know you can't tell us anything about book two, but um, but, could, but rest you... assured, we know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we, we do know, and and you are thinking the right things and asking the right questions. So. <laughs> good, 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 good. <laughs> uh, could we talk about prophecy for a second? Because um, I love the way in this book that it was kind of like leveling, like, can you talk about what it's like to write when you've got a prophecy in play? Because it just feels like, as a reader, you get this whole extra level of expectation in place that you are, like, it's like you're trying to figure out what's happening in the story anyway because the story's unfolding and you're into it and you love the characters. But then on top of everything is overlaid this expectation of prophecy and um, what is it like to write with that in place? Uh, I'll tell you what, it's com- it's a little more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the tagline for this good book could be, the other side of the sky. Oh, that was harder than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, the like I mean, the, all of it, the romance, the prophecy. <laughs> the funny thing is, I mean, this the, the the sort of dirty little secret about writing a book with with a prophecy is that we get to change the prophecy if we need to. Yeah, you know. <laughs> but the funny thing is, we definitely, as we wrote this book and rewrote this book and rewrote the rewrite of this book, we changed the prophecy and then we changed it back. Yeah, like oh, it, we had a vision for the book. We wrote it and then we had to like do a lot of changes as you do when you write a book. Yep. And we ended up tweaking the prophecy and sort of altering it a little bit to fit those changes. And then as we sort of got further through the editorial process and as our editor sent, sent it back to us over and over and was like, not quite there yet, not quite there yet. And she was right. Yeah. Eventually wow. we realized, oh, the first version of the prophecy was always the right one. So yeah. we as the writers actually kind of had the strange experience of being <laughs> held to our own prophecy. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> That's so cool. That's it very feels, Yeah, it feels like a real magic trick when it's done as well as it's done in the other side of the sky because I feel like the second a prophecy is in play, your readers are like, okay, how is the – obviously it's not going to be the interpretation that it seems on the face of it. So you immediately get your readers trying to like figure out a different interpretation of this prophecy. And you have to manage not only making it seem as though the the most obvious translation is the only way to go, because they have to feel trapped in it. Yeah. You have to also have this other trick up your sleeve. I just like I feel like it's rarely done in a way that really pulls it off and it's definitely pulled off here. Well, so this is what's tricky, right? Is your characters can't be dumb. So as you say, <laughs> Because if the reader is smarter than the characters, it's one thing for the reader to maybe get to a conclusion just a moment before the characters. Yeah. That's actually what you want. But if the reader is sitting there for 100 pages being like, you idiot, that's not... How could you not see this? Oh, my yeah. God, figure it out already. I had it yeah. called on page 10. Yeah. yeah. It's not satisfying. It is, it's not satisfying when, uh, right. when that so happens. No. It's like this balancing act where on one hand you are trying to make it an obvious enough interpretation that both the characters and the readers will think, yep, this is, this is what it all means and this is how it should be done. And, I mean, that's not just a prophecy. That's, say, in a murder mystery, that's a clue. Mm, that's, or, yeah, know, any book. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, but, but to also engineer it so that when they see what it is, they're like, ah, yeah, okay. That, 
I don't feel ripped off. Like there was not no way I could ever have gotten there, but it wasn't. One of my, yeah. yeah one of my favorite pieces of writing advice that I ever got from uh, uh, a really brilliant woman named Jean Cavellos who runs the Odyssey writing workshop in New Hampshire every year uh, is that the ending to your book. And honestly, this applies to any twist or clue or revelation is that the ending of your book should feel surprising yet inevitable. Yes. So you want your reader to be surprised by what happens, but to also feel like they should have seen it coming. Like yeah. to feel like, oh, I knew in my bones that this is what was going to happen. This is the right conclusion. This is the right one. Yeah. That is, that that is great. That is great like, advice. Yeah. It's, it's, what, it, what, it's what makes it work is when you feel like, oh, how did I not see it? Because on some level you must have known it, but if the book is good enough, you're so distracted by what's going on with the characters and the story that you, the part of your brain that would normally try and figure it out just goes to sleep. Cause it's, yeah, it's um, like a story sleight of hand. I mean, you, yeah. you introduce the clues that the reader needs to come to the correct conclusion, but you distract them at the same time so that they can't place the correct emphasis and they can't link them together because there's enough yeah. other stuff happening to draw the reader along before they can stop and examine it. Yes, which yeah. is what makes us then go back and reread it after we yeah. finish reading it. Yeah, to, because, and we love that. We always put yes. in things for rereading. We always yeah. put in things for rereading in all of our books. Yeah, there's, there's deliberately stuff there to pay you off so that if you've read book three and then you read book one again. Yeah, you then you just like, go, ah, ah. Oh, they <laughs> Easter eggs. <laughs> On page mm -hmm. five, they knew this. Yeah, yep. yeah. I don't know. I love um, an a book I recently had this experience with and and Sarah, I think you had the same one was uh, the Erasure Initiative by Lily Wilkins. <gasps> oh yes, I read that as well. Yeah, right. So for those who are listening, it's a, it's an Australian YA that came out just recently and is a fantastic thriller, uh, which just pulls you along. You know, the premise is uh, seven strangers wake up on a self-driving bus with no memory at all and have to figure out why they're there. And it quickly be, you know, and someone starts sending them mysterious tests and questions and it becomes clear pretty quickly that they're playing for their lives. And when I got to the end of that book, I remember slamming it down and thinking, damn it, at multiple points, I thought, hang on, but what about that? That doesn't quite make sense. And then something so exciting would happen that I would just charge on. Again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that feeling at the end of being like, you gave me literally everything and I even noticed some of it. And I couldn't stop. I still didn't quite get that yet. Yeah. You have to be really, really stuck in the story. And, yeah. um, and that duration issue definitely did that, did that to perfection. So does the other side of the sky. And um, we're, unfortunately, I've got my eye on the clock and I wish I could keep talking because I feel like there's so much more to cover. But we have to sort of start the process of beginning to end the, the podcast. So what we normally do towards the end is um, ask you both, kind of what's what's up next uh, what's up well so for for us jointly uh the other side of the sky book two what's up mm -hmm. next? uh we, we're currently kind of wrestling it in a kind of a crocodile roll situation but i think we're going to come out on top i think so uh, too yeah it's um i mean it's sort of like that's sort of how you want it to be i think if you don't feel like a book is really quite challenging to write and stretching you quite hard. Yeah. 
then you could have done something more challenging. You could have done something more advanced. So it's not. I mean, there's a long reason. Long. Yeah. There's a reason we set challenges for ourselves when we wrote this book to begin with. And yeah. I think we're also setting new challenges for ourselves with the sequel. And, and those, it's like how it's the parts in between the set pieces and the twists that you know are coming. It's the parts where it says, here be dragons. Yeah. And that's what gives you the joy of writing and storytelling. And I think of reading. So yeah. while we're definitely having a bit of a wrestle with it, it's going to be a good one. Yeah. Well, and I, I quite honestly think that the Megan Amy who began book one in this series couldn't actually have written book two yet. No. I think. Oh, and that's not. a real pleasure to know that, to think, mm -hmm. oh, we actually built muscle during the writing of book one that is going to allow us to do book two, yeah. you know, in, in this really complex way. So that's very exciting. Um, the other thing I have coming up is it's coming out in Feb in Australia. It's the world between blinks. It's uh, my new middle grade series. So oh, stressful. Very good. Um, it is, it's the story of a couple of cousins who slip through uh, uh, into the world where all the lost things from our world go, whether that's, you know, cities that get buried under deserts or that pen that you were really sure you had in your handbag <laughs> or say missing Australian prime minister, Harold Holt. Or <laughs> all kinds of other stuff. Uh, and, and so it's sort of, and it's, and it's an adventure about about trying to get home and it's an excuse to have, a really fun romp through history. We even put an appendix in the back to tell readers all the stuff that's really true. But it's also a story about grief because I, I wrote it with my friend Ryan Groudon and uh, both of us lost a parent either before or during the writing of the book. And so it's also because the, the kids in the book have lost their grandmother and and her they're having their last summer holiday at her at the family beach house that was her home before it goes. And so it's also a story about how sort of sometimes we try too hard to hold on to stuff and sometimes we try too hard to let go and sometimes we should hold on and sometimes we should let go and how, how do you tell what's what? Yeah. So, oh, that sounds wonderful. And really another. And that's yeah. in February, coming next year, early February. That is right. Um, and Meg, are you working on anything solo or with someone else at the moment? I am working on my next solo book, but I unfortunately can't talk about it yet because uh, it's still in, you know, preliminary stages. So I've still got that gag order in place, but it's a book I'm, I'm really, it's really quite cool. excited about. Yeah. <laughs> Amy, Amy knows all about it. She and my editor are like the only people who really know much about it. Um, I'm just excited to know there's one coming. I, I love yeah. your book. It's good. Oh, thank um, you. Uh, this one's going to be interesting because it's going to be different from some of my other stuff, but it's going to be good. It's going to be really good. I can tell you that. I'm really excited about it. Um, yeah. Like, I feel like right now, everyone in this industry, I mean, I think everyone all over the world, but, you know, as a writer, I know a lot of writers. Everyone is really struggling creatively. It's it's a really hard time. And I think there's this tendency to be like, oh, well, I work from home already. So it's fine that I'm, you know, I mean, stuck. we even said that at the start, right? Yeah. We, yeah. We, when this all began, we were like, oh, we've been training for this all our we, life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's but different it when you do something by choice. Uh, <laughs> and when the rest of the world. It turns out is, when yeah. the whole world changes, the way that you do your work changes too. Yeah. 
And for me, it's been really, really hard to be inspired or to feel creative. And so when this idea really hit and I got the green light from my agent and the green light from my writing partner and the green light from my editor, I, you know, feeling that inspiration again, I think that a lot of this sort of hope that comes from the reemergence of that after a long, dark summer in our case uh is is going to show in the book and so i'm really excited to write it and i'm really excited to come back to that world again after this uh long, That's fun. yeah yeah long few months. yeah yeah um that, that was a very i know we're ending things but i will just jump in to say very quickly that that was the other um so strange when you know in these last few months when we're reading these books that have been written well before and conceived well 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 before in in your case um you know COVID's happened but that you have this story about you know people that can't touch and I'm like oh my god (laughs) like all these that can't touch and I'm like just there's been so many of them that we've um I think particularly particularly books that we've been reading the last few months that just feel so like you know this extra layer that yeah <laughs> this extra layer yeah. that we just would never have imagined no one none of us would have imagined yeah. um yeah. beforehand so yeah i can i, I can t- definitely understand how hard it must be as a, as a as a creative person to have you know your entire like your entire world be changed and then still be like expected to just you know you're a creative person just keep creating <laughs> what's your oh, problem yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, you so know what? it's really it's great news so weird that even we thought it was going to happen at first before yeah. we realized yeah. Yeah, well, we've never lived through something like this, have we? So how would we know what was, exactly. how it's yeah. going to affect us? So, yeah. Anyway, sorry, I sorry, Sarah. I know we're wrapping up, but I just no, no. I actually had a question in about these times, um, <laughs> but I, I thought we'd run out of time. But let's just squeeze it in um, because I think it would be good to to end on a hopeful note if we can. <laughs> um, Amy, earlier this year, you really said something that stuck with me which was like when you see all the empty streets um with people staying home instead of viewing it as you know a sad thing or a disturbing thing you viewed it as an expression of love and I have found myself thinking of that again and again you know when when continually things are happening that are really disturbing and trying to see it through a viewpoint of um hope so I wondered if either of you just have something about this challenging and difficult experience not just of being a person um in 2020 but of releasing books in this time that was in some way um hopeful or surprising for you yeah you know one thing that's been really lovely has been that usually when we release a book we we tour in person and that's really great if you live in a big city And it's not so great if you either live outside a big city or you have little kids or you have any reason you can't leave home, which could be like anything from a lack of childcare to a disability to, you know, it's expensive to get in and park in the city or or whatever. And doing our our launches online and doing so many events online has meant that people from all over the world who would never usually be able to do face-to-face events with us have been able to to come along and listen to us chat and ask questions and sort of be a part of the book community. And it's been really lovely to be able to connect with them. Oh, that's nice. Um, I th- I've thought a lot about that too and, and how book launches are changing because of this pandemic. I think 
unrelated to the the book industry, uh, one of the things that I've noticed just personally in the world, I guess, is how different nature has become. I live in the mountains of North Carolina, these really ancient old mountains that are full of beautiful trees and plants and animals. And I live kind of in the woods. Um, but this summer has seen the most animals all over the place that anyone has ever seen. Like, because we're sort of taking a step back and letting nature be for a while, it's coming back like immediately. And I think a lot of people of our generation have a lot of fear and anxiety about climate change yeah. and about like what we're doing to the world. And I think this summer has been kind of a, a, a symbol of hope for me, at least in, on that front, because it's just a few months and my world has changed. You know, I look out my back door and it's a completely different world than it would have been a year ago. And so for me, I think it just shows the resilience of this world. And the thing is, we are of this world. So we have mm -hmm. that resilience too. And I think that oh. that is definitely reason to hope. Yeah. And when Meg talks about nature, Meg's talking about like Meg gets bears in her garden. <laughs> yes. Like Whoa. Which, like, the <laughs> cannot even, like the first time she sent me pictures of bears, I flipped. <gasps> yeah. Yeah. So, like, more bears? Be more like, bears than usual? Meg was like, no, no, I'm in the house. The phone is through the window. It's okay. Wow. <laughs> I was like, Can a bear open a door? Like, how I be? Not yet. Not yet. Not yeah. yet. I really put things in perspective for me because I saw my first huntsman spider of the, of the year. Oh, I was like, oh my God, but it wasn't a bear. <laughs> I would much rather see a bear than a huntsman spider. <laughs> You know yeah. what? Maybe I would too. <laughs> yeah, we didn't tell Meg about those before she moved here for a reason. No. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's that. I'm that not sure I would have come if I'd known. <laughs> uh, well, we've, we've well and truly gone over time now, but thank you for, for sharing those um, hopeful outlooks. I think this is a time when it's important for everyone to allow themselves to feel crappy because it's not, it's not a great time, but also it's wonderful to hear other people's takes on on how to stay positive because I think they penetrate more than any kind of pep talk you can give yourself. Um, so thank you. And also thank you for coming and speaking to us about the other side of the sky. One of my highlight reads of 2020. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. And thanks for reading and, and discussing books with such heart. Yeah. Oh, we love doing it. Um, and podcast listeners, you can get a copy of The Other Side of the Sky as well as um, all of the, the Unearthed Trilogy and the Starbound Trilogy by Meg and Amy and all of the amazing books they've written uh, separately and with other people. <laughs> They're all good and I highly recommend them all. Um, at your local bookstore or online at Booktopia. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au. 
Dot au.